I don't want left liberals to get so worried about being associated with the right that they are defending or minimising problems on the left. If you speak out, it should be really clear to any honest person that this is not the same thing. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Sometimes something strange happens in politics where the fundamentals of a situation seem to point in one direction. The fundamentals of a situation for a long time in Britain have pointed in the direction of Northern Ireland being a huge obstacle to the kind of Brexit deal that Theresa May's government is trying to put in place. Because nobody wants to accept a hard border on the Irish continent, but unless you have some real border between the United Kingdom and the rest of the European Union, it is hard to see how Britain could ever exit the single market. It is also really hard to see how Donald Trump can keep getting away with it. How it is that he pays off porn stars and apparently was trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow well into his presidential run, and yet he doesn't seem to have to pay the price for it. Now here's the simple law of politics that I'm suggesting. When the fundamentals all point in one direction, and yet the expected outcome doesn't happen, make sure that your logic is sound, make sure that fundamentals really point in the direction you think they do. And if they do, just be patient. There's this odd thing that happens in politics where everybody starts to assume that because the expected outcome never materialized, it never will. Apparently some part of politics is just exempt from the underlying rules. While I think in the long run, the fundamentals do come home to bite. After ignoring the Northern Irish border issue for a very long time, it is now starting to be of the greatest relevance as Britain tries to figure out what to do about Brexit. And after Trump, relatively popular, with strong support from the Republican Party, was able to ignore all of the scandals, all of his huge ethical problems. I think at some point the moment will come, perhaps after 2020, perhaps even before, when the stuff that didn't seem to matter suddenly will. So keep the faith, believe in the fundamentals. I personally don't think that Donald Trump is going to get away with the clear breaches of ethics and of his duties in office that we've been seeing over the past two years. For this week's episode, I spoke to Helen Pluckrose. Helen is the editor of Ario magazine, and she's become known in the last few months because she was one of three people who penned a series of academic articles, which they submitted to journals, most of which were primarily concerned with various fields of identity studies. So these included gender studies, uh, fat studies, and so on and so forth. These papers ranged from topics like perhaps the most famous one, canine rape culture in Do Portland Dog Park, to things like arguing that it is moral to hoax 
bad hegemonic disciplines like economics, but immoral to hoax good progressive disciplines like gender studies. These papers were accepted for publication in a striking number of journals. I wrote about them for The Atlantic under uh, the title of So-Called Squared, and they generated a whole bunch of pushback and controversy. Helen understands herself as a liberal left critic of what she would call identity politics. We had a conversation that I think sort of started in some ways quite slowly, but really built into a fascinating deep dive into what the nature of that form of postmodern identity politics might be, the ways in which she believes it to be harmful or dangerous to the cause of the left, what a universal liberalism that takes the disadvantages of minority groups seriously might look like, and how people who are on the left, like Helen and me, can criticize aspects of the left that we're uncomfortable with without allowing ourselves to be instrumentalized by the right. It's really a great conversation. I hope you'll listen to it and enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Helm. Yeah, thank you for having me. Listen, so I think you came to a lot of people's attention a few months ago because you and a couple of co-authors wrote a series of sort of hoax papers. You know, I don't want to dwell too much on that because I think a lot has been talked about that. And actually, it's more interesting to get a little bit into what motivated you to do that and how you see the wider political scene at the moment. But just briefly for people who didn't follow that controversy, what were those papers and what was your purpose in writing yeah, I mean, often people are sort of referring to those as a hoax, but we call it the H word because it's potentially misleading. Our papers, apart from the ones which they um, claimed that we'd examined thousands of dogs' genitals, etc., but our arguments and our approach to it, the ethics, were completely sound. We drew on hundreds of papers that were completely sincere, completely legitimate to make certain arguments which we thought should have been clear to everyone were both ridiculous, um, just not warranted by any evidence and unethical. And we were sort of directed to do that by reviewers in various directions as well. And that the purpose of that probe, project, um, investigation, whatever you call it almost anything is better than hoax, to be honest. But it was to look at what was out there, the papers that were out there, how it was working, how epistemologically, how do we know what is true and ethically, what do we think is good and how do we go about doing that? I mean, I suppose the hoax element or the thing that I take it to mean is relatively straightforward and just that sort of you pretended to write things in earnest that you know you thought were were either obviously silly or abhorrent and 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 that seems to be close to the core of the enterprise that it's sort of exposing that something that's considered commonsensical or important or sort of innovative in some fields of academic study actually should somehow when seen from outside the boundaries of those disciplines just sort of seems evidently absurd so what were the kind of things that these papers and especially some of those that did end up getting published in serious academic journals. What kind of arguments is it that they put forward or claims that they made that you know should have seemed obviously silly to somebody who comes from the outside? Well, there's sort of two drivers there. There is a rejection of evidence-based epistemology and there is promotion of ethics based on 
identity and the idea of power structures arranged hierarchically. So we could argue, uh, for example, that white students should be chained to the floor, that it is prejudice to value reason and science over traditional ways of knowing, including the supernatural or witchcraft or anything like this. I believe feminist interpretive dance was my favourite. Didn't you argue in one paper? Feminist interpretive dance should substitute for astronomy. Well, astrology, yeah. And that one, they're still actually, they don't seem to have realised they're still actually writing to us and, and asking us to hurry up and get our revision in because they were very excited about that one. We argued that a queer and feminist astrology should be part of astronomy because it's essentially masculinist and imperialist to privilege astronomy over astrology. And this one was inspired very much by the feminist glaciology paper. And uh, the comments that we had on that one were, yes, we've got into some of the softer sciences like psychology and biology, but we haven't got into physics yet. And it would be wonderful to see these sort of very sort of subjective, politicised, unsubstantiated claims about being able to tell the future by the stars going from a female and queer perspective into physics. No, no, we don't want that in physics. <laughs> so what is it that all of this is sort of exposing, you think? Or what is it that sort of, you know, the fact that you can get a paper published that claims that white students should be chained in the classroom or that we should get rid of astronomy because it's imperialist and, you know, substitute it with feminist interpretive dance. Presumably you spend a lot of time and effort on this and you think it exposes something sort of important in the world. So what is that? I think what we're really looking at is this shift in how we're understanding knowledge and how we're going about things ethically. And I'm talking, yeah, very much about the humanities and sort of some aspects of the social sciences, but I'm talking about the left more generally because what we are looking at really is ethics. We're looking at identity. We're looking at race, gender, sexuality, how we achieve equality in society. And if we're not doing this in an evidence-based way and in a consistently ethical way, I don't think it can work. And so, I mean, you know, when you say sort of, oh, it's about the left, you know, some people have interpreted that as an attack on the left or as sort of an alliance with even the old right or something like that. I mean, what motivated that series of papers? What are your own political commitments, I suppose? This this is something that, that confuses me quite a lot when people think that arguments about how to improve the left, how to do liberalism properly are a sign of being right or not liberal. It really doesn't confuse anyone at all that the people who spend a lot of time and energy arguing for the right way to interpret Christianity are almost always Christian. It's not surprising that they're not looking at the correct way to interpret Islam because they don't think there is one. I have always been left. I am a liberal lefty and I distinguish this from the radical lefties who come from a Marxist materialist position. And more and more recently, I'm having to distinguish it from an identitarian lefty who are coming from a very postmodern position. And now I've got to the point where I'm, I'm almost afraid to use the word postmodernism because it's been taken up by right-wing intellectuals and generally sort of right-wing people anyway, and applied where it doesn't belong and mixed in with Marxism and you know, neo-Marxist postmodernism, which is just a nonsense. But it is a postmodern epistemic shift which has been 
gaining steam for about 50 years now where we're undermining how we know what is true. We're seeing everything in systems of power, of identities plotted within those systems. And it is undermining liberalism and it is undermining the core of the left, which is to ensure an equal access to things, which is to care about the interests of the working class, of the poorest people. Yes, obviously, identity is an issue here as well. Women have been disadvantaged. Ethnic minorities have been disadvantaged. So have sexual minorities. This is a very legitimate concern of the left. The right historically has not been concerned enough about this at all. But the way that we have just shifted focus so much away from core leftist economic and social aims and from core liberal universal freedom and access to things aims to this identitarian mess is really concerning. So when you say that you do recognise defending minorities against discrimination and attacks as one of a core parts and missions on the left and one that the right has historically, you know, inadequately pursued or, or sometimes uh, actually been outright complicit in creating the discrimination and injustice and so on. Absolutely. Then sort of what is it that pathologies in these fields of studies, which you claim to have identified, show about the way in which the left has gone wrong, right? I mean, if we talk specifically about making sure that we get towards better gender equality, that we make sure to remedy the discrimination of ethnic minorities, what is it that these fields of studies would claim to have the same goal? To listen to that, I think you and a lot of authors in those kinds of journals, at least at the top line, have the same goals. Is the problem that actually their vision of society is quite different? Is the problem that they're wrong about how to achieve that society, that they misunderstand the nature of current reality? Sort of what is it that leads to that divide when actually the underlying motivation appears at first glance at least to be shared? It really is is all of that. I mean, and that, that's what I'm writing a, a book about at the moment because it is complicated and it is counterintuitive. It, it comes from this conception of society which sees truth as something that is made and not something that is found. It sees it as having been constructed historically by white, heterosexual, rich Western men, and which to a certain extent is true. There have certainly been biases and power has taken a great role in what we've believed to be true, For if it's been Christianity for, for centuries, for example. But we're looking now at this idea which is really terrible for the rights of women and the rights of minorities in which we have a different knowledge to men. And whereas men are all about reason and science, those aren't for women and um, ethnic minorities. We've got our own ways of knowing which, which must be brought out and which are experience-based and which are feelings-based or they're rooted when it comes to certain cultural groups in traditional practices, those only haven't had the same prestige as science and sort of Western philosophical tradition, as they call it, which is actually just reason, which is accessible to everyone. And this is underlying, this epistemological aspect is underlying so much that is going on. Did you see that it recently came out that liberals, and this is in America where they tend to use liberals synonymously with left, are actually more likely to simplify their language when speaking to racial minority than conservatives now? Yeah, I saw that, yeah. That um, came out in a study yesterday, and I'm not surprised by this at all because this is really key. There is a certain amount of 
sexism, I would call it sexism, going on, where we hear that in order to advance the rights of women, we need to focus less on reason and evidence and more on feelings. If we want to make up for imperialistic past, then we need to stop focusing again on science and reason and go more into sort of traditional ways of knowledge. So this is a kind of charge, I suppose, of sexism or racism, as the case may be, of low expectations. That part of what you're saying is that there's a misdiagnosis going on of what the causes of gender inequality, for example, are. And it's somehow that things that actually we should recognize as being universally human, like reason and so on, are somehow gendered. And that therefore, in order to make sufficient place for women, we need to emphasize emotion and so on more, because somehow in order to create enough space for women in the world, we need to reduce the role that reason plays. And in a similar kind of way, I guess I wonder, what do you think is implied exactly by this very striking and unpleasant empirical finding uh, that apparently liberal Americans do talk uh, sort of down to ethnic minorities in a way that strangely conservative Americans don't? And that seems to I mean, I suppose imply that liberal Americans care a lot about the equality of racial minorities, but at the same time actually have an internalized low opinion of them. I have trouble thinking through just exactly how to interpret that finding. Yeah, I, I have to admit I do as well, and I wouldn't want to make hasty claims about what this is. I, I was um, talking to James Lindsay about it just last night at some length about whether what is happening now is that people who have focused so much on systems of power and racial difference and gender difference are actually kind of talking themselves into being racist and sexist, or whether that kind of predates it, because it would be really unfair to say that this is a bigotry of low expectations, because they just don't have the same expectations. It really is rooted in a suspicion of science and reason. They are considered to be abusive constructs which have sort of grown up in the modern period that they've um, been present and used to justify patriarchy, slavery, colonialism and a lot of horrible things and that we really do need to unpick them now and try and construct different kinds of knowledges to make up for the past. So it's not literally true and fair to say that this mentality underestimates women and minority groups, but in practice, that is what it does. So let me try and stick out two slightly different fields here. So one is the further end of what that more uncommon study that I discussed with Tim Dixon on a recent episode of a podcast would have called progressive activists and perhaps certain academic spaces, where there is this sort of you know, deep and quite theoretical rejection of the Enlightenment and of a Western tradition and so on. And I think that that has potentially real dangers that we should try and get into. I mean, the way in which that really does misunderstand empirical reality. It might, for example, lead to policy prescriptions and forms of collective action, which ultimately have misidentified the cause of our current problems and therefore don't do anything to address them. And that's a serious problem. I agree that that is gaining an influence and it's particularly gaining an influence in some of the way that we lead our public conversation and so on. But when I look at this particular finding, and I haven't studied the paper in detail, my understanding is that, you know, one of the things we looked at, for example, was democratic politicians and how they speak to the Chamber of Commerce versus the Association of Black Business Owners. And it finds that they sort of use much more simplistic language when they speak to the 
association of black business owners and so on. But there, you know, it doesn't seem to me that this is the set of people who's deeply imbued in that progressive activist discourse, that that is the set of people who actually come out of rejecting science and evidence and so on. I don't think that that's sort of where the standard democratic local politician is yet. Perhaps it will be in 10 or 20 years as there's a generational shift and as the Democrats move over to a particular part of the left. But it seems to me for now that the modal gender studies professor and the modal local democratic candidate really are not that much alike. And so, so that perhaps the sort of phenomenon of liberal Americans talking down to ethnic minorities in certain ways is perhaps quite separate, actually. And I'm not going to say it couldn't be separate, but yes, what I would say was saying, and what I'm writing about and I'm trying to show now, because I think it is very counterintuitive, is that we are not looking at postmodernism proper, where we've got this complete denial of any access to objective reality and that sort of real sort of purity. What I would argue has happened is that we had the big postmodern explosion. It largely burnt itself out because it's not sustainable. But then at the end of the 80s, we had a kind of second wave, a resurgence, which came in the form of, of intersectionality and within critical race theory, post-colonialism and queer theory, and all of these sort of next highly politicised waves, which came up then and which said very, very explicitly, we want to take these cultural constructed ideas of postmodernism, these power balances, and we want to apply them more politically. For that, we have to accept a social reality to exist. And then we have to address that so that there was a kind of a return to an objective and accepting of an objective reality but it kept the constructed idea and the idea that knowledge has been constructed in an unbalanced way and then this has caught on at the same time to the ends of the civil rights movements the feminism of gay pride when we're starting to see diminishing returns from these because so much was done in such a short time to sort of rectify legal inequalities, that we've got a society which is reckoning with its own history of slavery, imperialism, patriarchy, and it wants to continue these strides towards justice. And we've got a big kind of mess all coming in at once. So I understand completely, I doubt very much that democratic candidates and, and business owners and the average person is sitting there thinking about Foucault or even Judith Butler or Kimberly Crenshaw. But there's an idea now that's really sort of got in and caught on to the, the zeitgeist, which is undermining universality, is undermining individuality, that is making us very focused on if we want to be good people, if we are good liberal people, that we're looking at identity in society, that we're trying to stabilise it to push up that which has been down, to bring down that which has been up. So I suspect, and I could be wrong, I am not a psychologist and I have not looked into this enough, but I suspect the reason that white democratic candidates suddenly lower their own um, seeming vocabulary and ability to articulate themselves when they are speaking to historically oppressed groups, black Americans, is because there is this consciousness of a past imbalance and a deliberate lowering of oneself, which is understood to be needed to raise other groups. That's my suspicion. I'm not sure that I understand the psychological mechanism you posited there right at the end. It sounds very interesting, but I'm trying to sort of grapple with it. So the easiest guess as to what's going on here 
is that there's some amount of internalized prejudice. And there's a reason sort of why that might go together with a certain kind of lefty or liberal attitude, right? Which is to say that one of the best predictors of whether somebody's on the left or the right is the extent to which they feel that, you know, we should help the weak in society and so on and so forth, whether, you know, the avoiding of suffering is the most important thing. And so in a certain sense, for Democrats, the idea that there are people who are suffering and who are weak is more primed. And that's one of the reasons why I'm on the left, right? That I do think it's important to remedy suffering in the world and so on. So I'm not saying this dismissively. But if that's what you're sort of primed to do, then you might say, oh, well, today I'm going to, you know, an association of black business owners. And sort of by definition, they're presumably part of a already thriving black middle class and so on. I'm not thinking of them as business owners who presumably are pretty successful and smart and so on because, you know, they've managed to build up a business. But I'm thinking of them as a black historically oppressed group. And so my sort of mental categories emphasize sort of a weakness rather than their strength. And so I start talking the way that I would to people who I think are, you know, oppressed and weak and so on. And perhaps I need to put things a little bit more simply because probably they're not at the same level of quote-unquote sophistication as another business group I might talk to. So that's, I guess, the sort of most straightforward interpretation of what's going on that I can muster. But what you're saying is that it's a more deliberate sort of self-effacing or that it's a more deliberate sort of nearly a little bit like the thing that's become quite popular of sort of, you know, you should sort of shut up and give space. It's sort of like a verbal equivalent of that. Is that what you're trying to say? What I was trying to say was really very much exactly what you've just said. But I think that this consciousness of somebody as a historically oppressed racial minority rather than as a successful business owner is something that is coming very much out of this understanding of society as constructed in identity groups and hierarchies, which is really very explicit now in a lot of the postmodern stuff. As you just went through it, I'm as nodding vigorously and I'm, I'm agreeing with all of that. And we can see it very clearly. And I keep coming back to Kimberly Crenshaw, the founder of intersectionality, who's also a very significant critical race theorist, because she really helpfully sets it out for us very explicitly in her foundational essays. And she addresses what you have just said, which is that there's a need to get rid of a universality and a need to focus on identity. So she contrasts saying, I am a person who happens to be black with I am black. And she's saying that the mainstream liberalism, what I would call universal liberalism and, well, just really liberalism, which sees identity as something from which social significance needs to be removed. So we're not removing identity, we're not removing man and woman, black and white, but we're removing ideas such as my doctor should be a man but my nurse will be a woman. We're removing the idea that certain races are fitted to certain jobs. So it's removing social significance. That's the universally liberal approach. And she is coming in and saying from this, no, we need to focus on identity really explicitly and get rid of this universality. And also what comes from this is the individuality. 
What does it mean for them to remove that universality? I think that's crucial for understanding this, and I'm not sure I've understood it yet. So I think the sort of universal liberal stance you've explained very clearly. It's saying, you know, at the moment, being black has a lot of significance in our society because there's historical injustice and because there's ongoing discrimination. And so what we need to do is to overcome that injustice and that discrimination. And in that society, somebody may still identify as black, but may still be an important part of identity. But it'll have less social significance because it's less salient, it's less important to us, because we don't carry around prejudices in our head, because it's not an obstacle to employment and to opportunity and so on and so forth, right? And you're saying, no, they're saying that's a wrong-headed response and there's a different way of doing that, that says, let's get rid of universality. And what, what does that sort of mean concretely? What's the social vision that is behind that? What would the ideal society look like in the eyes of a critic like that? The critics of liberalism are saying that what we are doing, what I am doing, is trying to maintain a status quo. I'm trying to make other groups simply comply and assimilate with what is essentially a white Western masculine way of understanding the world and going about things. So that's coming from this sort of stance that different groups have different kinds of knowledge. So we're looking at this universalizing idea as really an illusion. Individuality and universality are liberal illusions which are really meant to make everyone behave like white western middle class men. So the idea of identity politics on an epistemological level is that we need to bring back into knowledge all these knowledges which have been removed because the dominance of science and reason has just become knowledge and everything else is superstition or silly. And so we need to reset our boundaries and bring that back. And as you said, you know, I don't think that the average person, the average sort of politically aware person or, or pundit is thinking in these really postmodern terms. But it has infiltrated to an extent where we're suddenly very aware. I'm now talking to a black person. I'm now talking to a trans person. My knowledge, I'm, I'm a white person. My knowledge has unfairly dominated in the past. I need to set back and let them present their knowledge, which will be different. The term that was used was making oneself seem less competent. So that is a kind of attempt at a humility, I think, which is coming in the service of trying to promote and amplify other voices. And it is a noble impulse. But I have found, I mean, not now, I'm, I'm persona non grata now, but when I was still identifying as a feminist and talking very much about gender equality, I would find that this kind of male a feminist would really not engage me as an equal. I'd have a problem over and over again where they would tell me that they needed to be quiet in order for me to speak. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can try and talk over me if you want. It's not going to work very well. But it really was a condescending, and it's not meant to be. This is where I feel uncharitable. It isn't meant to be condescending. It's meant to be respectful and supportive of women because this idea that women really are oppressed, really do have difficulty in being heard, really do speak in a different way and everybody else needs to step back. It's really very dominant and I think it's really toxic. I'm talking at the moment to an Egyptian-American Muslim woman 
and I'm hoping to get her to write something. I'm certainly going to write about her experiences anyway, in which she has just given up trying to have conversations now because at a university with the social justice left, which she was interested in talking to, just the constant deferral to her as a black American woman. She has some wonderful things to say about it, which I'm going to quote. And it really is just so focused on one aspect of identity over her individuality, her arguments, which didn't actually always comport that well with um, Muslim women, but they were expected to. So let me try and make sense of this, Helm. So, you know, I think that there is the universal liberal epistemology. And I can see why people don't think that that's entirely satisfactory. You know, I grew up Jewish in Germany, and as I wrote about in my first book, part of which I'm now a little uncomfortable with, that gave me lots of experiences that most of my non-Jewish classmates and acquaintances growing up didn't have. And it put me ill at ease. It made me feel like I didn't entirely belong in that society in a way that I don't think they could ever quite guess or understand without hearing me out. So obviously we don't have universal experiences. Now, I think there's sort of two ways of taking that into account, of qualifying that kind of liberal universalism. The first is relatively straightforward. It's taking one little step or one medium-sized step. It's to say, for example, that I didn't understand until I talked to some of my female friends just how horrific the harassment is that they experienced on the subway. That therefore, in order to understand the experiences that others have, the kind of discrimination they suffer, the kind of disadvantages they might have to contend with, I need to have a very open mind when I speak to people with a very different set of experiences, with a very different background. I shouldn't say, oh, look, I'm a liberal universalist. I know exactly what's going on in my society. I have my own two sets of eyes. So why do I even need to particularly pay attention? That clearly seems tone deaf and daft. It's a way of not being able to understand the world better precisely because people with different experiences are going to have a different view of the world. And I can learn from that. Now, I think there's also an even more radical rejection. And that rejection says, well, look, you know, even once I tell you about what it was like to grow up Jewish in Germany, even once my female friends tell me about what nature the harassment they experience actually has, how persistent it is, just how disturbing it is, somebody who hasn't had the same experiences just isn't able to understand it. It just doesn't communicate. And there's a normative dimension here as well, right? So on the sort of medium epistemology, you say, well, look, when my female friends tell me about the harassment they experience on the subway, it's not that I have to take their word for it in order to understand that this is normatively bad. I can come to that conclusion of my own accord. I have my own sets of understandings about what's acceptable in the world and what's not, what kind of suffering is terrible and needs to be redressed. And I don't sort of have to defer epistemological or normative judgment to them and say, well, because I'm an ally to women and women say it's terrible when somebody grabs you on the subway, therefore I think it's bad. No, I want to own that normative understanding. That's a conclusion I come to myself and it's shared with them and maybe reinforced by them, but it's not dependent on them in that kind of way. Whereas I think the more radical epistemology here would say, no, 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 you shouldn't be coming to your own value judgments on that. You should just know that you defer to the value judgment, to the normative understandings of the most disadvantaged groups. So I guess it seems to me that we should understand that caricatural version of liberal universalism is not a good guide to the world. 
But I think we can move away from that towards understanding how people of different backgrounds are going to have different experiences and how they can enrich both our empirical understanding of a world and call attention to the normative urgency of redressing that without, I suppose, going the whole hog towards the sort of radical epistemological and normative subjectivity that some people have taken to be in the implication of that. Yes, that is the epistemology precisely. And that's something that really is very difficult to understand. You are not allowed to evaluate it on your own terms. It is an experience, is knowledge, and it is something that you really just have to accept as authoritative. If somebody says, I experienced this like this as this identity, then it would be really outrageous for somebody to say, but hang on, I have a different identity and I can see a different interpretation for why that happened. That would be a problem. One of the things that I've been looking at a lot is feminist epistemology. And there's a lot of analogies like this, which are really saying that men and white people literally cannot access this knowledge. Christy Dotson uses Plato's cave analogy, and she has people blindfolded and only able to see in certain directions, and it really is that divided. And so we, we don't see this depth of engagement with epistemology in general conversation, but there's an assumption. I mean, how many times have, I don't know if if you have, but I talk a lot with people with lefties about ethics online almost daily. And the number of times I will be said, it's not your place to say, you're telling us X group how to think, how to feel, because I am making an argument, an, an ethical argument about some equality issue. You don't have the place to say that. It's not your place. Sit down, shut up. You can't know. And it really is getting more and more rooted in that. If you, yes, as a humanist, perhaps as a liberal, are saying, well, this woman is telling me this upsetting experience, which nobody should have inflicted upon her. Your university liberal ethics are responding to that. If she were to say to you, something entirely different that well this is actually good that this happens to women because they shouldn't be out in public in the first place your reaction would be completely different and we have got to retain this right to evaluate according to our own ethics so let's get back to the sort of political consequences of that i mean i think you've sort of persuaded me of some of the ways in which not the qualification of liberal universalism i'm not sure it even is that but the recognition of the importance of the fact that experiences aren't universal and that we have to listen to each other about what's actually going on. But the way in which sort of some people go beyond that to the essential unknowability and uncommunicability of each other's experiences and the sort of radical standpoint authority that comes from that, I can see how that's intellectually unconvincing. I can even perhaps see how that misleads some fields of academic study. Why is it that we should think of this as a political problem? Why is it that this actually has potentially negative consequences in the real world? We do see the consequences of it in the real world when we see the kind of communication that is going on. If we're having, for example, here in the UK, we're seeing an awful lot of tension and argument over the subject of Islam. 
Now, this is something which universal liberals should really be just completely on top of. This is our realm. You know, we are talking here, we've got people with different backgrounds and different sets of belief and different groups in society, often different skin colours. So we have got this opportunity here to talk about the universal liberalism. We can support the liberals in each group and we can be very critical of the conservatives in each group. And what we're seeing on the left here is a failure with that. We are seeing a tendency to treat groups completely differently. And so we saw, for example, Owen Jones being extremely critical of the Liberal Democrat leader, Tim Farron, for believing that homosexual sex was a sin, but still supporting the rights of everybody else not to agree with him and full LGBT rights. And then congratulating Mehdi Hassan for saying the same thing for his openness. So we're seeing some very different standards, some different evaluations of what is going on in society because we are failing to have a universalism. And I think that this kind of thing, not this on its own, is pushing the surge towards the right. If there is a feeling that the left is not going to speak honestly about certain things such as gender and sexuality issues, if they're not going to speak consistently, not going to speak honestly about them, then I think this is pushing a surge to the right. I suppose there's two different arguments, right? I mean, one is about the ways in which some of the policies inspired by this might be inherently bad. And the second is some of the more sort of tactical piece about how it might fuel a move to the right. The second one, I both find somewhat plausible, but also very difficult to assess empirically. It's it's difficult to make sense of whether or not that's actually happening. And I think this would be a great avenue for political scientists to pursue, It's certainly true that certain framings of how people see the world can have a huge political impact on how they act. And that's something that political scientists have explored. I mean, one of the areas in which that's true is that if you emphasize to people the fact of an impending demographic minority, an impending majority-minority society, people actually become more resentful towards racial minority groups and so on. So that's one of the ways in which people's beliefs about the world can actually influence them. But we haven't had good evidence on, you know, whether you prime them to think in sort of identity-politics terms or whether, you know, if you expose them to identity-politics arguments, that somehow makes them more attracted to the right. And it's something that in principle should be not easy to study because I have some amount of skepticism about all those kinds of psychology studies. But at least it should be possible to study it at the same kind of level of rigor, which lots of other studies, which we're taking seriously, are conducted at. And that would certainly be a good cause of action. Now, on the other piece, I feel like perhaps there's more to say, right? I mean, I think, for example, about some of the ways, which don't require, by the way, some of those sort of deep identity politics assumptions, in which the conversation about equal pay often goes wrong in the United States. The way we normally talk about the evidence is, you know, women are being paid, depending on the country, you know, 70%, 80% of what men are paid. And the idea that this implies is that for the same positions in the same companies, women are paid less. That's how it's usually read and interpreted. And if that's the case, then it points to a set of remedies, which include things like, you know, fighting against outright discrimination, making it easier to sue a boss who gives a woman a different paycheck than a man, even for doing the same job, perhaps having forms of anti-bias training and so on and so forth. 
But when you look into the data, and I'm not disagreeing here with the main studies in the field, that is what the main studies in the field show, it's actually that women end up for all kinds of reasons at a slightly lower positions of the same profession or at slightly less high-wage firms. And a lot of that is about uh, the structure of career progression in the United States. So, you know, you can go to Harvard or Yale Law and be a very high-powered lawyer, but if there is a sort of particular track towards becoming a partner and you have a child during that time, and as is still the case in most cases, the woman goes and takes on the lion's share of a caretaking responsibility rather than the man and you sort of drop out of a partner track, then in the long run, you're going to make less money than a man. And that is an injustice. I don't think that this explanation of what's going on somehow should make us less concerned about the fact that women earn 80 cents on the dollar. But it means that the sort of set of remedies that the first story implied is going to be ineffective. Because the problem isn't that a boss is paying a female partner less than a male partner. It's that we've set up the workplace and caregiving responsibilities and so on in our society in such a way that it's harder for women to become partner. And that's a much subtler set of obstacles for which we probably need a different set of policy responses. And then there's a third option, again, where the difference could be argued to be explained by different levels of interest in work-life balance. We have tended to think of men as the default humans, that men's preferences, which have been shown over and over again to be for raw income, their tendency to work longer hours to put conveniences such as travel and extra bonuses to work aside for income and for status as the default. And so women coming later into these fields are sometimes questioned for why they're not making the default to the same extent that men are. It could be possible that women's tendency to work slightly fewer hours to prefer a greater work-life balance is actually more psychologically healthy, better for overall life fulfillment than men's average tendencies. Then the follow-up question for me would be, well, does that just mean that, you know, a lot more men than women are going to be partners in law firms and that's fine and that's just the choice that women have made? And perhaps we should tolerate some differences in outcome, that that is a genuine preference. But part of it is also, well, you know, perhaps actually, if law firms want to be successful, and if we want to have the best lawyers, then we should accommodate those preferences. And you know what, perhaps it's possible to be an excellent partner at a law firm and work 40 hours a week rather than 80 hours a week. And perhaps you can even work half time. And so, you know, again, I think none of this should be read as being complacent about improving social outcomes and improving options for people. But I agree that it's important to understand what the source of those inequalities are in order to understand, A, whether there's a problem, what the nature of a problem is, and what the right remedy for it is. I just want to talk about one thing to start to bring the conversation to a close, which is that the position of critics of left identity politics, I think, can be quite uncomfortable for a few reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that, in my mind, as this podcast, I think, consistently makes clear, the greatest danger of this moment is the rise of authoritarian populism. And at least in societies like the United States and much of Western Europe, that authoritarian populism is strongest on the right. And so it's important not to lose that out of sight. 
The second thing is that when you vocally criticize some of the things that you see as going wrong on the left, you gain allies on the right who actually would rather have Donald Trump than the left, who would rather have populism and all kinds of things, and who sort of use that as a wedge issue. Now, I don't think that the right response to that is rallying the wagons. And that was my personal experience of a reaction to the sort of papers, the hoax papers or the non-hoax papers that you published, which was that, you know, scholars of whom I know privately that they are deeply troubled by the lack of epistemological standards in some of the journals that you managed to get published in, who, if a grad student brought a paper along those lines to the workshop in some of the departments that I've been in, it would be mercilessly cut into shape and dismissed as something that's not at all up to the sort of professional standards of the discipline as they see them. But because Fox News wrote about your study and people on the right sort of celebrated and so on, there was this odd rallying around the wagon effect where suddenly people said, oh no, this hoax is entirely unacceptable and unethical and so on. Because look, it's give sucker to the right and to people who just want to abolish universities and who are deeply anti-intellectual and so on. And so I guess I'm just wondering how you think about, as a self-identified left liberal, whether to just not worry about that, whether to somehow respond to that. How is it that left liberals can criticize the bits of the left that they find to be counterproductive and simply wrongheaded, while sort of remaining clear in their ethical stance and not sort of starting to be, to use a fashionable term, appropriated by the right in certain ways? I certainly think that is something that we should be worried about. We were very worried about it before we even came out. And that was why our um, principal defence of the university, the need to defend against an anti-intellectual, anti-equality attacks on the university by very clearly addressing specific problems and not allowing this narrative of, well, the university is in, is, has gone insane, it, it needs to be burnt down, which is coming from elements on the right. And that more broadly as well, because if you criticise feminism, you're going to get a percentage of your supporters who are anti-feminist in the extent of being anti-gender equality. So it's important to obviously address this and to address the problems with this, but that isn't often needed to be sort of as a kind of a platform and a, a kind of virtue signalling thing. But if you are being consistently liberal, if you are arguing that gender equality is important, that racial equality is important, that LGBT equality is important, that we need to go with reason, with evidence, you're going to be coming up against ideologues on the left and ideologues on the right constantly, illiberalism and irrationalism on all sides. I'm going to come up against it much more on the left because I am concerned with issues on the left. But it isn't as though the idea that our criticism of a faulty epistemology and inconsistent liberalism can be mistaken for a right-wing position for very long if you are actually looking at it. We had an awful attack from academics at Portland State University who said that we were part of the same problem as Trump. Our rhetoric was a kind of Trumpist um, bullying thing. And has anybody seen Trump arguing for evidence-based reasoning, <laughs> consistently applied liberal ethics? This really isn't a thing. I don't want left liberals to get so worried about being associated with the right that they 
are defending or minimising problems on the left. If you speak out, it, it should be really clear to any honest person that this is not the same thing. I do get annoyed with uh, hypocrisy or poor arguments or bad faith on the left more than the right. But that's because, A, there's a lot of things to get annoyed with on the right that are worse than that. You know, I get annoyed with sometimes quite open racism and discrimination and so on on the right. And that seems a little bit worse than bad faith. But mostly it's because, you know, I see myself as part of the left. And so it's natural that I hold my own side to different standards because I want us to be the best we can. But of course, then the, the temptation is to spend sort of all of one's time on that. And that's fine. There can be a division of labor. But I suppose that's one of the things I sort of struggle with. And I, in this moment, as people may have noticed, if they sort of follow my Twitter account, you know, at the beginning of the Trump presidency, I did a lot of the latest thing with Trump is said is an outrage and here's why and so on. And it's tempting to still do that because you get, you know, lots of retweets and so on. But I want my content to be adding to the intelligent conversation. And I feel like that stuff isn't adding to the intelligent conversation because a lot of intelligent people are doing that brilliantly. I mean, people like Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post, who sort of day in, day out, you know, just points out all of the horrible things that are going on and expresses them cogently and brilliantly. But I don't feel I have much to add to that. I think there's people who do that very well. But of course, the danger is that you get drawn into giving the impression of having an outsized moral concern with things that, you know, by comparison to what Donald Trump and people of his ilk are doing, um, are both well-intentioned and less of a problem. But I think you outlined really well how to deal with that. And hopefully that both helps to clarify your intentions, but also give us courage to point out the things that we see where we think the discourse is going wrong on the left without feeling like we're somehow given sucker to the right. Absolutely. I mean, I think if we look across the bridge as well, I mean, if we look at conservatives, who has more credibility? Is it the ones who are saying there's no problem with Trump? Anyone who claims there's a problem with Trump is just got some kind of derangement syndrome and um, there's nothing to see here. Or is it the ones who are saying, yes, OK, there are conservative values. These don't fit them. We have a problem here. We need to address this. I will still not agree with the Conservatives who are seeing a problem with Trumpism, with populism, etc. on a general level. But don't we have more respect for those who are saying, yes, we have a problem on our side and we need to fix it because this is not what we're about? Doesn't it make you feel more positive towards conservatism to see good Conservatives? And I think that is something that we have to bear in mind. I want to win people back to the left. I don't know exactly how many have been frightened away by the sort of inconsistency that's been going on recently, but it wouldn't need to be that many to shift a balance back for things like the 2016 election, the Brexit vote was so close. I think that those of us on the left who are trying to make the left more credible and more attractive to reasonable sort of centrist, broadly liberal people should not apologise for focusing their attention on fixing their own side. Let the reasonable conservatives fix their side. That's their job. I can't put that too much effort into that. I need to focus on the left. Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Move to a new city. 
and deck out your moving van with huge advertisements for the good fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.